You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're on America's Web Radio for another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. Today is a really exciting day. I have a guest, uh, Commander Major Doctor, soon-to-be Congressman Rich McCormick, is my guest here. Um, He's a really amazing guy, a former rugby player, and somebody that I respect and that I will be voting for uh, for Congress in the uh, Georgia 7th race coming up. Rich, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on today. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're about and maybe explain how you've done all of these things? And I know I didn't even scratch the surface with all of your accomplishments in life, but why don't you lay that out for our listeners? Well, thanks very much. I'm, uh, I'm currently an ER physician uh, locally in the 7th District at a, uh, at a hospital, at a couple of hospitals there. And uh, I go to church there and, and uh, live there. And uh, my wife is all an oncologist in the same region. Uh, formerly a Marine Corps pilot for about 16 years. I uh, was an associate professor at Morehouse College as well as Georgia Tech, which is where I did my pre-med. Uh, I went to medical school at Morehouse School of Medicine, where my senior year I was elected student body president at a uh, school that's about 60% female, 80% black, and 95% liberal, uh, <laughs> mainly because of the relationships uh, I had. And, and uh, it's pretty amazing to see that kind of come full circle because then I went to Emory University for uh, my residency, finished uh, there and went back in the Navy as an ER doc, finished up my last four years. Uh, my last tour overseas was in Afghanistan. Uh, I came back from there a little bit more than three years ago when I came back and then retired shortly after and came back here to Georgia. That's awesome. I mean, you don't look old enough to have accomplished all of those things. Um, what is it that sort of induced you to run for Congress? So it came out of the Surprise Billing Act, which uh, we were really concerned about. A lot of patients getting bad bills, uh, up to 50% of all patients have dealt with this, where you'd uh, have the insurance companies not come to grips with a physician group or a hospital on on how they contract. And so the patient would be stuck with a bill that wasn't reimbursed by the insurance company. And so, of course, then they would go through the stress uh, of the arbitration process that was not Basically, the insurance companies would wipe their hands of it, and there was no laws to protect them. Uh, so we went down to the state house for several years in a row trying to solve this, and I did not like the way we were treated. Uh, you'd have competing bills with people with special interests, and uh, it got me fired up uh, over a year ago when I first got involved in this. I'm like, we got to do something. They're like, well, if you want to do something, you got to be at the table instead of on the table. And uh, that's when I got encouraged to get into politics, and from there, all the, all the uh, obstacles got swept away and here i am sitting in a real good position to win this race well thank goodness that there are people like you who are running for congress this show is typically about comparing and contrasting socialized medicine to free market medicine and really when people talk about health care they're not always talking about the same things in our health care system what we want is access we want quality we want the best costs, and we want our healthcare to be innovative, constantly moving in better and uh, more effective ways to treat people to give us happier, healthier lives. We commonly talk on this show about the difference between Hippocrates and Plato. Plato described healthcare as being from the perspective of the state, where decisions were made that were in the best interests of the state. That is not how we do things in America. Our oath is the Hippocratic Oath. Our goal is to take care of patients. We're very patient-centric. And in my experience in healthcare that's been almost 30 years, I've been able to see both types of policy put into place, that being the government-run healthcare system, which we all know from our experiences at the Veterans Administration, which is the most draconian, most awful way to possibly do medicine. Unfortunately, we see a lot of people around the world are stuck in socialized medicine healthcare systems, which we can see in real time is not very effective at combating the coronavirus outbreak. In this country, we've been moving steadily towards socialized medicine with more and more government control over our resources, patients and doctors having less and less control over their healthcare decisions. Talk a little bit about that and what your policy and prescription is for resolving this. Right. So the reason that we keep on marching towards socialized medicine is because of the bad behavior in the free market system. The free market system has provided us 
an opportunity to excel in medicine. That's why we have the best medicine in the world. People talk about our, our longevity. Why is our longevity not as good as other countries? Because we have other reasons we die, whether it be from suicide, homicide. But if you take those kind of things out, the, the violent things that, that end our lives, we outlive everybody. Yeah, life expectancy is not a measure of the quality of health care, which is why proponents of socialized medicine always use it. Right, because there, there's there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, exactly. as Mark Twain would once say. And uh, I think the, the, the lie is that we don't have, I mean, they talk about infant mortality. Uh, the only reason we have a lower infant mortality is because we try to save babies who are 20 weeks old when nobody else even says that. They, they just, that doesn't count. because What most people don't realize, there's only one country in the entire world that counts every single live birth as a live birth, and that's the United States of America. Every other country that keeps infant mortality statistics takes cases out. If you're a visitor from another country, they don't count you. If the baby's born at less than 500 grams, they don't count it. Right. And a variety of other reasons. So their numbers are artificially inflated. But if you correct for that, the lowest infant mortality rate is in the United States of America. And a lot of people don't realize it's very difficult to get a baby into a NICU along our northern border because they're filled with Canadian babies. <laughs> exactly right. And, and so we don't take that into account that we, we actually save all these babies' lives Otherwise, wouldn't even be, they wouldn't even try in another country. Same thing with uh, the way we do statistics on gun violence, for example. We're the only country in the world that counts suicides as gun violence, which makes up about 70% of all gun deaths, if you will. And right. So once again, the, the lying statistics that people use in the liberal media to warp the perception by the by the uh, people, we the people. And I think uh, one of the problems we have, though, if we don't clean up the way we're doing medicine, because it is expensive, and that's our biggest problem. It's not that it's not good. It's fantastic. We spend a ton of money on it, though. And the reason we spend a ton of money is because we're not good at the way we regulate things. And when I say regulate, I'm not asking for more laws. I'm actually asking for less laws. The more laws we have, the more expensive it gets, because what happens, that's how we justify these outrageous prices in pharmaceuticals. Uh, the fact that we pay 10 times more for insulin here than we do in Canada, when it's a chemically identical substance, is outrageous. Uh, the fact that you spent four times more on Botox when it's made in the same factory is outrageous. You can actually be fined. They can come confiscate your drugs, fine you, because you have a chemically identical drug to somebody else. Just because there's a regulation out there that says, I can do that. And, and that's protectionism. That's where these laws have actually hurt us. And that's why some of these bad actors, whether it be pharmaceuticals, insurance companies, whoever, that pay both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, to make laws that protect them from any kind of competition, any kind of fair market uh, solution, has made medicine more expensive. And what they're counting on, and this is what I believe, in my personal opinion, the Affordable Care Act has done, is forced us into a worse and worse system so that it's bound to fail, and people are bound to get fed up with it, whether it be surprise billing or anything else that's wrong with medicine, to the point where people are going to eventually say, I've had it with this. Let's go to socialized medicine. It can't be any worse. And then they're going to really get taken to the cleaners, because then you have no fair market solutions. Then you have no competition to do better, to work harder. And then medicine will go down, down, down like everywhere else. Well, we've seen this, right? You've been in the political arena long enough to know that Republicans and Democrats alike have really done nothing to secure free market health care. Uh, George Bush had control of both houses for a period of time, and nothing was done to secure private medicine or free market medicine or patient-centric medicine. Obviously, Obamacare got uh, implemented. It's been steadily taking root over a long time. And a lot of people don't realize that when Social Security passed, uh, it was a disaster for a very long time, but eventually it got so ensconced into the American way of life that we're still dealing with the ramifications of that failed uh, policy to this day. And they're using the same playbook with Obamacare. And I hear a lot of patients that are, in, in many cases, uh, educated people, for example, the CEO of one of the hospitals I work at, saying to themselves, well, I have great health care. And the fact of the matter is, is when you have the government that's mandating what procedures and what, what types of care you're allowed to have, they're mandating how much you can charge for the health care, and they're creating these risk corridors where hospital systems can only lose a certain amount of money, 
that is one size fits all government run healthcare. Now you may think you're getting Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or Cigna, but at the end of the day, you're really not. And it's this this web of big medicine that is special interest that's paying off Republicans and Democrats that's preventing us from getting a patient-centered health care system. And one of the things we talk about is whenever you get a third-party payer system, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid or an insurance company that's picking up the tab, they're going to the table with the politicians, uh, with all of the other players involved, and what you're getting is product being sold and bought with other people's money. And the more that that happens, the more they're able to fleece the system, and we get less of what we want. And I use the example, my mother fell down the stairs not long ago. She got injured. My brother called me and said, mom's not doing well. And I said, listen, you need to take her to the emergency room, and these are the things I want you to get. I want you to get these x-rays. I need these lab tests. But listen, when you hit the emergency room, they're going to hit you with all this kind of stuff, and taking care of mom is almost going to be an afterthought. And after my brother took her to the hospital, he called me back, and he said, man, what was that all about? They really did do all this stuff. They did nursing home placement testing and all this kind of stuff. And I said, the reason that happened is because there's an arrangement with the hospital system and Medicare of what they will pay for. And so when mom hits the emergency room, they fleece her for everything. They get every scan they can do. They run every test they can do because they're being paid with third-party money, the Medicare money. And then the problems that are actually affecting my mother at that moment are an afterthought. And this is kind of the problem with healthcare right now. We have got to get doctors and patients back in charge of making their own healthcare decisions. Absolutely, 100%. You know, it, it's really funny. We don't motivate people to do the right things in medicine. Matter of fact, with the way that insurance and pharmaceuticals are designed right now, uh, there's there's no accountability at all. So, for example, if you go in and you have insurance, it gives you that false sense of security that I, I don't have to worry about anything because it, it's going to be paid for. Uh, what we don't realize is, first of all, one out of every five taxpayer dollars is spent on health care already. That doesn't count your deductibles. It doesn't count your premiums. Anything else you pay out of pocket, that's not counting any of that. So if you think about the incredible cost on that, but people get lulled to sleep because I have insurance. I can go anywhere I want and do anything I want, and it's going to be paid for. So they go to the ER for things they shouldn't go because... Why? It's paid for, right? Uh, oh, my deductible has been met, so I can go anywhere I want to and do anything I want to. So there's no accountability personally. Uh, if you look at all the, monocle, the models around the world of different healthcare systems, one of the best ones is Singapore. I've been studying like all these different uh, systems. Why are we not more like Canada or other Nordic countries? Uh, there's a lot of countries out there that are more capitalistic than we are in the way that they build their models, not just not of medicine because they're socialized medicine, but of everything else. Why do they go to centralized medicine? Does it work there or doesn't it work there? Once you really come down to it, Singapore has a great model. Let me explain how that works. So they have basically a free market system. Everything's price transparent. And then they fund an HSA. So let's say you're my employee. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay $2,500. You're going to pay the other $2,500. That's your money that you have to spend towards your deductible that year. So basically everything else, you're, everything you don't spend that year, you roll over to the next year. And so you're rewarded to make good decisions who you see, whether it be the emergency room or your primary care. What they found is it doesn't make you ration your own health care because you know that long term that's going to affect the expense of your health care. So you still do the right thing. You still get your mammograms. You still get your exams. You still uh, manage your hypertension, all that stuff, because you can do that on the cheap because you can shop around to any doctor you want based on pricing transparency. And then if you spend your money wisely, for example, when you go to a pharmaceutical uh, to get your to get go to a pharmacy to get your drug, you choose the one that, that costs the least because now you're motivated to save money. Then you can roll that money over the next you only spent a thousand dollars this year. Guess what? Now you're only putting five hundred dollars because that's your half of your to your next year. So you're saving money. You're let me give you another example. LASIK surgery on your eyes. It used to cost four thousand dollars per eye. But because we had a free market because it's paid out of pocket, people could shop around to doctors and determine who had the best quality and the best price and go there. And all of a sudden, the competition drove the price down. Now it's under $1,000 per eye, and you get better quality care, and, and people are happy with the results. Why? Because it was a free market solution. It drove the price down because of their competition. When the government sets prices, 
you're always going to get the same price. There's no motivation to do better. There's no motivation to work harder. If I'm going to pay a physician a set amount for working, guess what? That is the VA. That is exactly why the VA doesn't work. There's no motivation to work harder. You have a retirement. No matter what you do, it's impossible to fire you. And so you end up with this huge conglomerate. And, and by the way, this is the problem with the VA is that you have no accountability. You're, you have a bunch of people who are going to retire. They know they are. You have a big building that's, that's full of administrators and no motivation to improve. And that's what's wrong with socialized medicine if we go that direction. But if we don't clean up our privatized medicine, guess what people are going to demand? Unknowingly, uneducated, they're going to to ask for the worst solution to the problem. Well, that's really the basis of this show is we're, you know, it's called the doctor's lounge. And we want to have these conversations because you and I have been in this business for a long time. And I don't really have a dog in this hunt other than I want great health care for my kids, and I know what works and I know what doesn't work because I've seen it with my own eyes. And I know as a provider of health care, I know what motivates me and what doesn't motivate me. And I was talking last week when I was uh, working in Oregon. I was the only game in town. And so I would get these consults at 8 o'clock at night for shoulder pain, which is not a very life-threatening or limb-threatening issue. It's just discomfort. People get it all the time, especially older folks when they're in a hospital for other reasons. And when I was in Oregon and the only game of town, I'd get that call at 8 o'clock at night. I'd be like, ah, you know what, I'm going to see that in the morning. But in Atlanta, where they could call a bunch of other different doctors, I'm in that patient's room right away because I want to show them that I'm worth, you know, I'm worth something. And this just shows I'm the same guy. I've got the same morals, the same education, upbringing, and everything. It's just a competitive marketplace makes me a better doctor than in a less competitive marketplace. The other thing that's important to note is the Oregon plan, where they had the ability to sort of look at the outcomes on patients with Medicaid. And just to kind of summarize the study, it showed that people with no health care had better health scores than patients that were on Medicaid, actually showing that this government-run health care plan was actually worse for you. Contrast that with the Indiana plan where they took state's employees, gave them the option of basically creating an HSA, similar to what you were describing in Singapore, and what they discovered after a period of time was that they had something like 65% fewer emergency room visits, 50% fewer hospital admissions, and I think it was something like 30%, 35% less per prescription drug, and the patients had a higher health score. And after however long this study was, several years, only 4% of people had switched back to a traditional health insurance plan. And what this shows us is that when you become a consumer of health care, you make better decisions, the quality of your health care is better, and you spend less money. And that's what we need to do, is we need to reacquaint doctors and patients with the costs of the procedures and the the healthcare that they're receiving socialized medicine does not take inventory of success or failure they just keep doing it the same way over and over again regardless of outcome because there's no consequence right and and it's important to realize that in the best of situations let's take Canada for example everybody talks about oh Canada is so great it works great there first of all they have a very homogenous society unlike us uh, so they should be able to do it really well the problem is people don't realize how many people from Canada come to America for the healthcare. Why? Because as soon as they get referred to a specialist, the average wait is about 21 weeks. That's nearing a half a year to see a specialist, and that has gotten worse every single year. Now, that's in a great system comparatively to the rest of the world, and, and that's in a very homogenous... I mean, let's, let's face it, there's some differences between Canada and America in, in the mix of people and payers. Uh, there, there's a mix in the way that we even approach life. I mean, when they win a championship in hockey, you can't even tell the next day in the city, we win a championship in, in something... I mean, the city's trash. It's just a different mentality. Uh, but they do it as well as they can, and they still have horrible health care compared to us, thinking that they have great health care because it's all free. First of all, remember, it's not free. Uh, look at the healthcare system when we talked about the VA when we referred to always this comparison. It's the only good example we have of, of socialized medicine. We spent over $220 billion on 8 million applicants. We have this huge overhead of, of buildings and people who have been there forever, and yet there is no motivation to excel. As a matter of fact, if I had my ways, if I was king for a day, I would take all the ones that are not serving that public, and, and we should all, by the way, agree on this one thing, as Americans. Why is it that people who come here against the law 
are getting better health care than the people who have served and sacrificed for their nation overseas in harm's way once they get out of the military. That is criminal. Plain and simple. And if we can't give them good health care uh, through the Veterans Administration, then they should be able to go out in the civilian world and get the same health care that all the people who come across the border illegally, come to this country illegally, and then demand their free health care and get premium health care as a result. That's criminal. Well, the fact of the matter is, you said it, nothing is free. We're going to pay for health care one way or another, and we talk on this show a lot about the great Milton Friedman, the economist Milton Friedman, talked about the four ways to spend money. You can spend your money on yourself, your money on someone else, other people's money on yourself, and the worst way of all is other people's money on other people. Neither cost nor quality matter. And when we talk about Canada, I was going back and forth with someone on Twitter yesterday who was extolling the virtues of Canadian healthcare and talking about how amazing socialized medicine was, and I explained to them that my my practice, Barber Orthopedics, has more MRI than entire provinces in Canada. The premier of Newfoundland, who, by the way, was a big advocate for socialized medicine, when he needed his heart surgery, he came to Miami to get it because it wasn't offered in Canada. And we see 60,000 people a year that leave Canada get their health care elsewhere because they can't get it in Canada. And you also were talking about the exorbitant wait times. The other thing that's always amazing to me is when patients will say, I get great health care, and my answer to that is always, how would you know? If you don't go to medical school and you don't know what's available and what could happen, all you understand is what your outcome is. We've probably both read the book, The House of God. You and I both know that in the end, it's in God's hands. We do the best that we can, but doctors don't really save lives. God does. And it's not really up to us in many cases. Um, but what is important about healthcare is that the decisions that are made are made between doctors and patients, and that the allegiance of that doctor is towards the patient. We've seen with the expansion of government control and healthcare, the passage of Obamacare, we now have three, 53% of physicians are now employed by hospital systems. And as an employee, those hospital systems put restrictions on them. For example, if a patient gets an infection, that's a ding against the doctor and is going to affect their reimbursement. If you readmit a patient within 30 days of a discharge, that's going to be a ding against the doctor. And so they've created these perverse relationships where if you look at a patient who's maybe overweight and diabetic and they smoke cigarettes and they're kind of sickly, you're thinking in the back of your head, if I try and do something for this patient, they might have a bad outcome and that will reflect poorly on me and decrease my reimbursement. Or if you de discharge a patient and they need to come back in 15 days, you're going to be incentivized to keep them out of the hospital because you don't want to have that mark against you, even if it's the right thing for the patient. And you and I both know there are a lot of reasons why somebody needs to be readmitted within you know, 30 days of uh, a discharge that have nothing to do with anything the patient did wrong or anything the doctor did wrong. It's just the way healthcare is. It's always a problem when the administrators are making rules based on what they see as a business model rather than the, what we see as the art of, of medicine. And you're absolutely right. There, there's some statistics that say, yeah, sure, you shouldn't have a patient come right back after you discharge them. That means you did something wrong. But that is, you never let a rule be uh, be a determining factor on making a common sense decision. I always, I always like to say in the military, never let a rule make you stupid. Yeah. And unfortunately, we have plenty of those. Yeah, you know, I'm, I think about all the times, too, that I look at patients and I'm trying to make an informed judgment. And I'll say, hey, listen, why don't we send you home? See how you do. I know in the back of my mind if things don't work out, you can come back in. Well, now you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I'm going to keep you in the hospital until I'm positive you won't go home. How is that for resources? You know, we're basically wasting resources that we're not going to be able to use in, in other avenues. And that's really, in the end, that's why the decision-making needs, needs to be between doctors and patients. Listen, one of the things that's really frustrated me is I went to medical school like you did. I studied really hard. Uh, I didn't see my 20s, or at least by the end of my 20s. My 30s I spent in books as well. I went to a residency program that was five years. I then did a fellowship for a year, you know, 13 years of training just to get to the starting line and then practicing for 20 years. I have perspective about what works, what doesn't work, and people have heard the phrase, it's not the science of medicine, it's the art of medicine, because it's more than just going to WebMD and looking at what to do. There's so many more factors that you have to take into consideration. 
I get offended when some administrator comes down and it, and institutes a draconian rule that has nothing to do with the care of my patient. I just had this happen yesterday with all of this coronavirus stuff going on. We had a patient that I needed to do a procedure on. I went to a hospital. I was taking call at, and I, I was looking down at my cell phone as I was walking in the door, and I was immediately accosted by 10 people screaming at me, where's your badge? And I, you know, I had it in my hand because I was just walking in the door, and I kind of showed it, and they all yelling at me, put it on. And I look, and it's 10 security guards. You know, I thought we weren't supposed to congregate in groups of greater than 10. You had 10 security guards not to check my temperature, not to ask me any screening information about cough or shortness of breath or fever, uh, not to encourage me to wash my hands or anything to put my badge on. I mean, this is the way the bureaucracy thinks. Then I go to the operating room and they instituted this procedure of... Uh, putting the when the when the the anesthesiologist put the patient to sleep, everybody else has to leave the room for 15 minutes. And the concept is they're letting water droplets uh, settle uh, before we go in. This to me is so ridiculous. Where did this science come from? What is it, who made these decisions? You're costing 15 minutes for every patient for something. I'm going to be in a mask anyway. Am I really being protected? And I'm being told that we have limited resources at these hospitals. And here you are adding 15 minutes onto every case for something that I can't even imagine is going to make a a bit of difference. This is the kind of stuff that you and I deal with every day at the hospitals. So I was, this is the amazing thing about government, right? They like to say that they've done something. Same thing with any administration in the hospital. I made a rule, therefore I fixed the problem. Even though we have no data afterwards that has fixed anything, we have tons and tons of rules both in the hospital system and laws and the government that people have basically said, look, I made a law, I fixed it. And then that law goes on the books and we, we suffer the consequences. No problem was fixed. It's, it's just like the same reason whenever we have catastrophic problems, uh, whether it be a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado around the world. Let's say it happens in Malaysia and, and millions of people die. And then we as Americans say, I'm going to give them a billion dollars. And we just say, look, we fixed it. Meanwhile, somebody's driving around in a Ferrari now in Malaysia, and the people who got hurt are still living in mud huts, dying, and with their, their disease process, because none of that money got to where it was supposed to go. But we did something. Congratulations as we pat ourselves on the back as a government because we gave a million, a billion dollars. We do it in churches too. We do it in hospitals too. We do constantly. We make rules to say, look, I address this problem. And we do it. The military is one of the worst part, problems with that. And, and, and you just talked about the, the people who follow rules. You know, oh, you didn't have your badge in your hand or on your collar in the right place. That didn't fi- fix anything, right? Right? I mean, this is I've seen recently mayors react in the wrong ways because they're making rules that they want to fix this social distancing problem, and they think that a rule or a fine is going to fix that. Uh, you think that that making laws is going to fix drug abuse? Uh, I can give you a million reasons that rules and laws don't fix things. Education does. The reason that that kids don't smoke anymore is because we've educated the young people. Now we have to do the same thing with vaping and heroin and crack and everything else. That's a big problem in this upcoming generation because we spent time educating them on one thing which is great but we neglected other parts of education if you want to fix the drug problem in america educate people so you can make the right decisions if you want to fix the health care system in america don't make another law educate the people on what they need to do to fix it give them a piece of the pie the accountability they need education is the key to most problems in america not laws yeah, you know, it's funny. I think about the way that the bureaucracies, particularly in the hospital, affect healthcare. And one of my favorites is MRSA, you know, MRSA infection. So when we go to medical school, we learn the difference between what, what are known as nosocomial infections, meaning they're nasty bugs that live primarily in the hospitals versus what we call a community acquired infection, something that's sort of out in the community. And, you know, in the hospital, we're using antibiotics and there's a lot of sick people. And so we tend to breed these nasty Bugs. MRSA used to be considered a nosocomial infection, meaning it was a spe- specific strain of Staph aureus that uh, was primarily in hospitals, but it over time became a community acquired infection. When I go to see a patient with, in a room, there's a uh, 
a, a bunch of gowns hanging on the door, masks, gloves, all this resource to just go in and evaluate them as if they have the Ebola virus. And I often think to myself, how much money is wasted on that policy and procedure? And it has absolutely nothing to do with science. And doctors have nothing to do. And I just, to this day, I laugh. I go and I see a patient with MRSA and I'm looking at all of this stuff on their door. There's this protocol. You have to gown up, mask up, glove up, all this stuff just to go in and, you know, say hello or how you're doing. It's really stupid. And we need to really get, again, Decisions need to be between doctors and patients. We don't always have the right answer, but that's why the patients need to be in control. If they don't like the information that a particular doctor is presenting, they need to have the opportunity to go get another opinion from another doctor. We're going to pick this up when we get back from this break. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the America's Web Radio. This is the Doctor's Lounge. Today, my guest is soon-to-be Congressman, Commander Major Dr. Rich McCormick. He's running for the Georgia 7th District for Congress. He's also an emergency room physician, pilot, former Marine, or I guess once a Marine, always a Marine, a commander in the Navy, really an impressive guy. We've been talking about health care. We've been talking about what he plans to bring to Congress, free market solutions to our health care. And one of the things that's sort of big in the news these days is the coronavirus. I know I've touched my face a couple of times during the course of this broadcast, and my wife is going to be busting my chops when I get home. But we need to talk about some common sense things that we can all do to help protect ourselves during this. And I I would like you and I to kind of discuss this a little bit from a doctor's perspective to maybe give people some perspective out there and help give them some information that they can use when making decisions about their lives. I quickly did a count uh, on Worldometer. Apparently, there's so far in the world this year, just since January to today, we've had 123,000 flu deaths. To date, the coronavirus has claimed 48,311 deaths. In the United States, we've typically, according to the CDC, will have somewhere around 60,000 deaths from the flu in a typical year. And we currently have 5,113 coronavirus deaths. Now, a lot of things come to mind here. First of all, I don't necessarily believe these numbers. I'm a physician out there practicing, and I don't really know how they would able how they would be able to come up with these numbers. I don't know that they're really making it a priority to measure them accurately, meaning I'm sure there's people who die of flu that don't make it onto that count because we're not looking, because there's no reason to. Right now, everybody's focused on coronavirus, and I think if you have stroke and heart attack and an open wound and you have dementia, oh, and you also happen to have coronavirus, they're going to attribute your death to the coronavirus when really it was sort of a superfluous thing. But having said that, how do you think things are going so far? So 
It's going to be, time will tell. And here's where I have to be very careful because every time we make an assumption, the game changes, whether it be <laughs> even the guidelines of what we're supposed to wear into rooms change almost daily. The statistics change daily. If you look at the wide variance between Germany and Italy, they're right next door to each other, really. And one has a 0.5% mortality rate. The other one has a 10% mortality rate. There's something wrong with the statistics. Once again, there, there's something wrong with the way that we're recording information, with the way we're testing, with the way we're assimilating the death rate to, to what's actually happening. And I see that as one of the biggest problems is evaluating truly what's effective in treating this and how we've contained it. I will say that President Trump, in my opinion, did a very good job. And the reason I say that is because every time they, the, other, the other side which will criticize him no matter what he does, I understand that's politics, but the first thing they said was he's being xenophobic, right? He, he's He's closed down the borders. That's crazy. Why He's making a racist move by trying to ban travel from places where the coronavirus had taken hold. I literally just watched a highlight of probably 10 different news agencies highlight that. A bunch of politicians saying, how dare he? Now all those politicians are saying, he waited too long. That's telling right there. No matter, they, they were trying to find chinks in armor, but the fact is he acted very quickly based on the information he had. Uh, he's decentralized command, which means he's given regional command to each governor and county so that people could deal with this in the way that they, sh- they see fit because not every country, or excuse me, not every state or region is going to have the same kind of problems. I mean, obviously, New York is not going to be the same thing as Oklahoma. The exposure right. rate, the amount of the hospital facilities. Just uh, the natural social distancing in Oklahoma versus New York where everybody's living on top of one another. Exactly. And, and I think that's what's really important to, to realize that no, not one solution fits all. And this goes, this, is, this goes back to my pet peeve is our Department of Education thinking that one educational system is good for everybody or, or any other department that thinks that one thing fits all. This decentralization is a great model to fit for all government, in my opinion. I think the more decentralization, the better reaction time. That's why the Marines are excellent at what they do, because they, they decentralize command so that the individual Marine knows what the mission is, and then they can act according to what they're seeing on the battlefield live. And that is the best way to handle medicine, too. Let the doctor, let the... Let it's the, the same philosophy about doctors and patients making their own health care decisions. Exactly. I think another great thing that President Trump has done that... Uh, that many people wouldn't have done is mobilize the private industry to work hand-in-hand with the government. They have the best ideas. They have the most innovative way of creating solutions to a need. This is what happened during World War II, the sleeping giant, when it was woke. We, we got to a point where the shipping industry could produce a battleship per day. Think about that. That's crazy. The number of planes that could be produced in one day. Uh, Ford converted their entire plant over to war industry rather than civil industry, and that's what made us so un- unbelievably strong. And that's exactly where we're fighting a war on a virus well, now. We've seen people like Michael Lindell, who makes pillows for a living, yes. all of a sudden shift gears, and now he's making much-needed ventilators. I mean, it's really a similar type thing happening in the country today, and I agree with you 100%. I think Donald Trump has done an amazing job with very limited and difficult information. I mean, I've been studying this all of my adult life, and I'm having a difficult time making a proper assessment here because we don't have all the information. You and I both know that the infectiousness of this disease is much less than what they're purporting it to be. I know for a fact that there are people out in the community that have been infected with the coronavirus and are not being counted in the number of total infections. And we know that there are people out there who are contracting the disease and who are you know, either small symptoms, light symptoms, or no symptoms at all, and they're not being counted in the overall number. Now, having said that, there is something serious going on here. When people are affected with this disease and it's severe, there are people that are dying from this that we would not expect to die. But it's not a clear picture, right? We're not seeing all kinds of young people coming in. It's one-offs or, you know, a relatively small number. But something is difficult here. I think Donald Trump, with no real medical education is relying on people to explain things to him and he's having to make decisions on this and as i said i'm having trouble with these decisions in my own life i have a medical practice i knew about 
the coronavirus a long time ago, just like when Benghazi happened. I knew the entire story the next day through my Twitter, just being connected with people. I knew that information. I didn't know that it was correct that day, but as years passed and I look back on it, it's like, wow, I knew that day. I knew the same thing that something was going on with the coronavirus long before it was being talked about here. And I asked people on my staff to buy up masks and gloves because I made the determination that these things may become rare in the future. Well, it turns out that my staff didn't do what I asked them to do. And the reason was they said they weren't allowed to purchase more masks and gloves because even in times of, uh, of uh, you know, no pandemic, I'm rationed the amount of stuff I can buy. And a lot of that supply chain comes from China. And this is something that we need to look at when this thing is over. We need to bring our supply chains for critical things like medical supplies back to the United States. So anyway, I had to start prioritizing. When are people going to wear masks and when are they going to use gloves? Because... I don't have enough for every person to use gloves and masks in every single interaction. So what did I do? I went back to my education at med school. You and I know that surgical masks do not prevent virus from passing in and out, and we were taught that it doesn't protect you from virus. So is it is it proper to wear a mask in every situation? There's also two sides of the ledger, right? If you wear a mask, you and I both know wearing a mask irritates your face, and when you're not used to it, it causes you to touch your face a lot, and that can actually cause more problems. So are we causing harm with masks? And the same issues that I had in my own practice dealing with a relatively small number of people, we're watching that happen nationwide right now. People that are, you know, what I call the peanut gallery that are, you know, if Trump tells people to wear masks, it's too much. If he's not wearing masks, it's malpractice. What are your thoughts? I, I have seen it even in the hospital system because there is a shortage of certain PPE that we're reusing gowns, for example, and and there's a lot to be said on that. I mean, the contamination, uh, even though we do everything exactly the way we're told to, it changes every day. So why is it changing? The information hasn't really changed. The supply chain has changed. So we're literally based basing our, our, our policy on supply chain stuff, not on information that's vetted through science or even through the art of, of medicine. So this just goes to show you there's a lot more factors based on our decision making than just doing what's right for the patient or even for the healthcare provider. And some of it's just necessity. It's just the way it is. I mean, we have to accept that. But I think if you talk once again about the, the fear mongering and the, the bad decisions that can lead to in the government. For example, when we came up with this stimulus package, and not to tie this back in, well, it does tie into the coronavirus. The more we keep people at home, uh, including the young, healthy people, and I understand a couple outliers, like you said, there are going to be some young, healthy people that die. But on an average year, when, like, well, even not an average year, a bad year, like two years ago when we had roughly 70,000 people die of the flu, nobody ever talked about the healthy people who died that year. Nobody, you know, you right. couldn't, I mean, it could be 100, it could be 1,000. We don't know because nobody ever even kept statistics on it. It was just happening. We didn't shut down everything. And yet, same thing with H1N1. We lost anywhere from twelve to 18,000 people in 2009. And nobody, and those were mostly young, healthy people because the older generation were actually immune to it because of prior exposure. And we didn't, we didn't talk about the statistics on that because it, there wasn't the same reaction. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be careful. I'm not saying we shouldn't social distance. I'm not saying... Anything to minimize the impact. That scares me, too, to think that you could be a healthy person one day and die the next day. But the fact of the matter is this was absolutely going to affect our oldest and most vulnerable generation. By and far, the people who are going to die with of something in the next three years are, are going to vastly be at a disadvantage to the disease process. The fact that we're going to even pressure the president into keeping people home longer than they should be at the cost of our economy. The cost of our, our sanity. I mean, you're going to have some some crime start to uptick. You're going to have poverty uptick. You're going to have an economy. Since suicides go up. It, the economy that's going to struggle as a result of this is going to affect us in so many negative ways. The question is, at what point do you say it's okay to get our youngest and healthiest people back to work to support this economy, to get us back right so we can do the right thing as soon as possible, understanding that people have to take some sort of personal accountability, that same word we talked about before with healthcare, that if I'm going to be around an older generation, maybe I shouldn't be doing a certain job, or if I'm if I'm uh, older or at risk, I'm not going to, you know, let's give another example. 
if I'm saying we need to mobilize all these retired physicians to go see these COVID patients, you're talking about people over 60 who maybe have health care problems going to see people who are infected. How is that going to help when they end up on the ventilator because they got exposed now? I get it. We need more doctors. But now they have an individual decision to make, and it's their decision. That's okay in that situation because we have a need. But it's not okay in a situation when it comes to a worker who goes and produces something that we're going to consume and help this country with. Why is it okay with one person and not with another person? It's, it's all based on convenience to the narrative. And that's where I say we are a country that always valued our freedom over our security or our safety. That's what made America great, is that we can make our own decisions. We can actually say, I, I'm more responsible than the government is for my own well-being, and I know what's best for me better than the government does. And, and that's what we should stick to. Understanding, yeah, the president has more information than me. I'm going to take into account what he says. Do I believe the government? Yes, maybe, no. It's up to you in the end to take care of yourself and to understand what's best for you based on the information that you're fed by the government and the CDC and other people that, that have our best interests or maybe not in hand. Well, we, uh, we know that the statistics coming out of Italy demonstrate that the, the, most of the people that are severely impacted deaths and things like this are the older population. We know that, uh, I want to say it was something like 50% of the people had three or more comorbidities that made them sick. There are other things at play here when we talk about, uh, you know, you'll hear about a patient who had no other comorbidities and they succumbed to this. And one of the things that comes to mind with me is glutathione. Glutathione is a molecule that's produced by the liver and it helps protect our lungs uh, with oxygen toxicity and free radicals and things of that nature. And we know that people who drink a lot of alcohol have a depletion of their glutathione. And I've had experience with patients in the past who seemingly healthy, m relatively minor procedures, they get on a ventilator and they can never get off. And it turns out that it's because they have a reduction in this this molecule produced by the liver called glutathione. This is just one example of a lot of different things that could be affecting the, the situation. We also know that people have different inflammatory reactions to things, right? Some people get stung by a bee, no big deal. Other people die from a bee sting. But we don't take draconian measures about bee stings. Now, in the end, I still don't really have a good feel for the numbers. I know we talk a lot about this flattening the curve because really what the issue is, it's not so much that we're not able to deal with the sickness. It's just we can't have everybody going to the hospital on the same day, all needing ventilators and all of this type of stuff. But one of the things that's really important for people to understand when you're making your calculations is politics absolutely affects the medical decisions that we make, and we're seeing it happen already. You and I both know that on the day before this pandemic started, you and I would have both prescribed hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin without giving it a second thought if we felt that it was the proper thing to do for our patients at that time and we got consent from the patient and the hospitals would have said nothing about it. Nobody would have second guessed me. It would have been easy to do. All of a sudden, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin becomes a political issue. And now we're talking about FDA approval and all of these hoops that people have to jump through to do it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think we've assigned too many medications in the past anyways. And you're right. Nobody ever second guesses a physician for prescribing too much in the past. Uh, Z-packs for ear infections that, that I look at the ear the next day and it doesn't look like anything. Tamiflu for patients <laughs> that, that were by the CDC standards not even recommended to have Tamiflu, made them feel worse to come back to the ER after their PCP, give them Tamiflu for what was maybe a viral infection. You know, just on that point, when I was in medical school, they told us that most of our upper respiratory tr tract infections that we get are viral. And antibiotics don't work on viruses, so don't give antibiotics. And for the longest time, I was just recalcitrant to giving azithromycin for people with upper respiratory tract infections because of what I was taught in medical school. And it was only the actual practice of medicine where I understood, hey, something's happening here. We now know that you get an upper respiratory tract infection from a virus, which causes you to get a super infection by your normal bacteria that are living down there, and that causes your symptoms to be worse. 
And by taking the Z-Pak, you get rid of that super infection by bacteria. I think in medical school, they're t- still teaching don't give antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infections. This is a perfect example of how doctors who are educated, who are practicing, learn on the job. This is the art of medicine. And sometimes it's not always the best learning because I've seen people who give cough suppressants. And, and when I say that, there's all these products on the market that, that – reduce cough, if you will, quote unquote. But if you look at statistically, they don't do any good. Unless, of course, you get the purple syrup, which is basically a heroin product, which makes you decrease your sensation so you don't cough, which unfortunately is what causes pneumonia. (laughs) Coughing is annoying. I I tell my patients all the time, I get it. You're going to cough for about three weeks. It's the average. But that's what God created in you to get rid of secretions so you can clear that that, uh, flowing air so you don't end up with pneumonia. Coughing is a good thing. and, And if we suppress that, you're going to have problems. So sometimes we, in, in an effort to to uh, diminish a uh, symptom, we give the wrong medications that's actually going to cause a problem downstream. So it goes both ways. Sometimes we prescribe too much. Sometimes we prescribe too little. And that's based on the education and the experiences we have. And then, of course, a lot of statistical analysis. And that's the problem with this coronavirus is we're lacking a lot of information. And it's changing every day. One time we said we're not supposed to give ibuprofen because – you're going to be four times more likely to die. And then two weeks later, oh, never mind. <laughs> and so right. we changed our medicine. Well, my wife still will not allow me to give ibuprofen to my children right now because of this uh, this concern. Another area where we saw something like, like that happen, there was a, a study. People always get fixated on a study as if one study is the end-all, be-all on any issue. You and I both know that when studies come out, it's just another piece of information. Some studies are really good. Other studies not as good. But all studies have bias in them, and none of them are perfect. And one of the big studies that came out was perioperative beta blockers. So a researcher came out, wrote a paper saying that if you give beta blockers to the appropriate patients around the time of surgery, that it decreases mortality. Hospital bureaucrats got a hold of this information and turned the place upside down. I literally cannot do anything until I address the perioperative beta blockers. And I I would get really frustrated because I would finish doing an operation. I'd go to the computer to do my postoperative orders, and I would get down to the perioperative beta blockers. And the beta blocker that my patient takes was not part of that list, but it would not allow me to do my orders. So I'd have to go in and put a medicine that was not the correct medicine for the patient, submit the orders, then go back in and put another order saying disregard my beta blocker medicine. I'd be sitting at the computer for an hour when you know it used to take me a couple of minutes. And then it turns out, oh, this beta blocker thing is not actually accurate. But my hospital to this day still has this hard stop with the beta blockers. And this is where this sort of cookbook medicine, this top-down bureaucracy, this government-run, the WebMD medical care is not effective. And at a time with that we're dealing with now with this coronavirus, we need to have people that are more nimble, people that are educated, that can really come up with things that are helping us so that we don't make the cure worse than the disease. Yeah, there's there's a lot of statistics that have been changed drastically since the beginning of this. One of the well-vetted quote-unquote well-vetted uh, studies said we're going to lose 2.2 million people in America, 500,000 in the UK. Uh, since then, has been radically, and this is a really good scientist who, who put out this, this information, and then that's been downgraded radically because he said, oh, I didn't realize how many people have been exposed to this already. Well, that doesn't explain anything because if they've already been exposed, why didn't they die? Uh, the, the fact of the matter is it's probably been in the United States since December is what I'm supposing. We had a lot of patients, especially through January, that I saw who had fevers, who were ill, who tested negative for flu, which is kind of weird in, a young, in, in younger people who did well uh, long-term-wise, but they didn't have urinary tract infections. They didn't have pneumonia. Why were they having this cough and, and the fever? We didn't have an explanation for it, and all of a sudden – Oh, look at this new disease that's come through, and, and now we haven't been treating a lot of these people. And most of them, the vast majority of them got better. And, and this is this leads to my next question is, the more socialization we do now, which is great, and to flatten the curve, the question is, what's the second wave going to look like when we stop doing this? Because eventually we're, we're not going to do this anymore. Eventually we're going to get back in groups where we're going to have people exposed who have never been exposed. And how do you keep these older people who are eventually going to get exposed from dying? Well, the, the answer is, you're not. Eventually, unless they get vaccinated uh, and that does them good and it doesn't get them sick, um, 
they are going to eventually get exposed, and that's the flattening the curve, sure. But remember, there's still a risk for a bad outcome long term, and that's one thing we all have to, to digest is that a lot of people are still going to die. We're trying to extend the amount of exposure so that the same number, and it could be anywhere now they're downgraded 200,000 is their latest statistic, and I think it's going to get lower than that, hopefully, um, in the long term. You know, once again, we'll get back down to maybe 100,000. That would be a win, I think, at this point. Uh, we had the biggest day of deaths this just this last 24 hours. It was around, it was over a thousand people. I've been keeping up with it every day. We was 700 the day before, around 500 the day before. We had a dip where it was down to 200 and then 500 before that. So we're going to see the worst yet to come. The question is, are we going to get to the, the levels of two years ago where we had, on average, 700 people die a day for 100 straight days? Uh, I hope not. But we don't know. And the question is, once we stop social distancing, we start allowing incremental introduction of people back in the system, are we going to see another spike? Yes. How much? We don't know. We don't know is going to be the answer to a lot of questions. Uh, I will say that if you're a high risk, keep your distance for a lot longer until they come up with better tre- proven treatments that we're allowed to give, uh, until they come up with a vaccination. We're, we're record pace, by the way, on this. The way the president has gotten rid of regulations once Thank again, God. which is what the president is good at, by the way. Instead of making laws, the president is really good at getting rid of laws. Laws have been the problems for, for decades now. Where we've made laws, once again, with great intention, but ill consequence. Uh, the president has been fantastic at deregulating. And that goes for, by the way, the EPA, where, where oh, we talk about, oh, the president's against clean atmosphere. We had the cleanest regulation. We, we are the best. We are the leading in industry at keeping this, this world safe and clean. It's good business to do the right thing. And, and the fact that people criticize him saying, we are going to be a dirty country now, nothing's changed. Yeah, it's funny. We pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, and we're the only country that would have been in that accord that has actually exceeded our carbon emissions. Not that I'm giving any credence to carbon emissions, but the point is we're not in any sort of accord, and we just do it anyway because that's how the free market works. That's exactly right. It's good business to take care of the environment. It's good good business not to discriminate. It's good business right. to have a variety of people in the business place. Hey, when I, when I was an instructor at Morehouse College, and, and my students would, my Navy ROTC students getting ready to go into the Navy would do an uh, internship at Coca-Cola. I had to fight them to say, no, you can't give up your Navy scholarship to go work for Coca-Cola because they offer in the world. That's good business to right. have a variety of people. You didn't have to make a law about that. You don't have to encourage businesses by laws to force people to do what's already right. You, when you make laws, that means you're, you're going to create a stigma. You're going to create a bias. You're going to create... Prejudice. You really. force people to consider things that they ordinarily wouldn't consider. I mean, that happened to me in my own business. I mean, listen, the older I get, the more I realize that nobody really cares about you. They care about themselves. So when I'm interacting with you, what I care about, can you be a good boss to me? Can you be a good friend to me? Can you be a good employee for me? Can you be an educator for me or my kids? I want you to be able to produce something for me. I don't care what you look like. I don't really care much what you do on your personal time as long as it's not illegal uh, and that it's moral. Uh, But for the most part, I don't care about these things. I care that, especially when I'm hiring people, I just need people who can do the job. And I've been shocked over the years at how the only time I've ever considered any kind of protected class was race, color, creed, or anything else like that was because it was forced upon me by consultants telling me you can't do this or that because of the political ramifications. Left to my own devices, I wouldn't consider it at all. So uh, anyway, that's kind of a sidebar from what we're really talking about, which is how to handle this coronavirus. It's the same, same, it's very, very, it has a great correlation though, right? Giving people the opportunity by education to make the right Right. decisions. And that's what this is all about. It does tie back in. Well, you see these people, uh, the Democrats on this task force concerned about the number of white men on these boards, which is just utterly ridiculous at a time of (laughs) pandemic that we would be considering such a thing. I want the smartest people, the most experienced people to be on the case here. It's like saying that the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, have to have a certain number of women and and minorities or whatever to go do a mission overseas when it is really about your capability. I don't care what you look like. If if I'm going to battle and I'm a Marine... I do not care what you look like or what you believe as long as you're, you got my back yep. and that you can keep up and that I don't have to carry your pack at the end of the day. That's what matters to me. That's what matters to most Marines. That's the way we are. 
and, and the fact that you need to make a rule to force somebody in and maybe compromise our standards. Gosh, you know, this person doesn't have the same standard because we need variety, not quality. That's concerning to me. And the same thing in medicine. I, I need to know what works. Educate me and then let me make the right decisions to get the mission accomplished. So right now, the things that we know about coronavirus that are helpful, washing your hands, uh, social distancing, uh, you know, if you think you have fever, shortness of breath, uh, if you have a cough, you know, self-quarantine yourself for about two weeks. In the end, this disease is out there. We are going to have to get back together. The consequences of shutting down this economy are really severe to a lot of people, and I know there's people out there suffering, people in my own family. So we're going to get back together soon, and we're going to have to continue these habits of keeping ourselves clean. Rich, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Congressman. If, if there's any last things you'd like to say before we close the show. Uh, it's all about education. It's about making the right decisions. I'm, I'm glad to be in this great, amazing country to see the leadership working the way it is. We just need to do our part, not vilify people, but work together. Uh, actually, in the ER, I'm, I'm seeing right now a lot of people are making the right decisions, staying home. The ER is actually less busy than usual. So I'm proud of the people. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll co- I know we'll come through this. This is America. We're strong. We're going to make it. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have you back on the show because you and I got a lot more to talk about. This has been the Doctor's Lounge and America's Web Radio. See you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.